Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with International Justice Mission. Thank you to Philip Calvert and his team for the incredible work they're doing. You may be asking yourself why. Why is Collisions YYC partnering with IJM? Well, because I believe we can end slavery in our lifetime, and I want to use my platform to be part of that mission. For many of you, hearing that statement may be a rallying cry. For the rest of you, it may be a moment of, wait, what? Slavery? Is that even a thing I should be worrying about? For me, up to six months ago, it was the second. I did not even understand the problem. After a chance meeting with Philip Calvert, National Director of Development for IGM Canada, my eyes were open to the reality that poor people face the world over, a reality of violence that stops them from ever moving forward in their life. At first, this made me uncomfortable. Then it made me downright mad. And then it gave me hope. It is the support of groups like IGM that will allow us to reach the goal of ending slavery in our lifetime and give hope to people who may have none. This is not a conversation that we want to have. It's a conversation that we must have. Please join me in supporting this incredible organization by visiting and donating to their cause at www.igm.ca. This is a fight we all need to take on, and we need to take it on today. Hello and a warm collisions. YYC, welcome to Mr. Kobe DeLorme. How are you, Kobe? Uh, very good. And yourself? I am fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show this morning. You and I, again, had met through the, the this 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 biggest small town I've ever lived in, good old Calgary uh, in Western Canada, of, I think, a mutual friend. And I was really curious to learn more. You're the chairperson, one of the founders at Influence Mentoring Society. And an area of interest for me, an area, an area where I want to learn more about our Indigenous communities and the role we all play to integrate and, 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 and get all the stakeholders together, which is something I know is a passion point for you. So maybe just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about Influence Mentoring Society, and then we'll just have a good old conversation about it. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so a group of us, uh, three individuals, we used to be a part of an organization that had been created by the city of Calgary called uh, Kauai, the Calgary Urban Aboriginal Initiative. Okay. And in that organization, there were eight domains, and these domains were all uh, created and directed at uh, the different barriers that Indigenous people face in an urban setting, uh, specifically being Calgary, but, you know, really there these are things that uh, Indigenous people face all across Canada. Okay. So ours that uh, we all met in was the employment sector. So we were having events and different sort of sessions that helped to talk about barriers, uh, bring in concepts, collect data from the community. And in that work, um, one fellow, uh, one of our co-founders, Bruce Randall, had joined and said, you know, I really think there's an opportunity uh, for a mentorship program with the, within the Indigenous community. And he had created... Uh, well, he, he's the he's the executive director of an organization called CRIAC, and it's a mentorship program for new immigrant professionals um, within the city of Calgary. And so he kind of said, you know, when I'm looking at this, I'm seeing a lot of the same barriers for new immigrant professionals as I see for Indigenous people. And... That wasn't something that I was aware of at the time, but as over the years, as I got more involved with CRIAC, I started seeing that those barriers were incredibly similar. So Bruce, myself, and a fellow named Jay Gerritsen, uh, we all decided that we really wanted to create some sort of 
mentorship program. But we weren't certain exactly where um, we could situate a program like that within the Indigenous community, within our community, mm-hmm. and wanted to make sure that whatever we were doing uh, was going to fill a gap or a need within um, within the Indigenous community. So. Colby, can I stop you for a second? I'm just curious because it's easy thing to brush over to go, you know, immigrant professionals and, you know, the indigenous peoples have similar barriers. What are some of the barriers that you started to see? Because I think it's really important. It's hard to fix something if we don't actually understand what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a great question, actually. Not many people ask that when I, when I (laughs) state that. Um, So if you were to look at some of the things that uh, both uh, groups deal with, that's purely having opportunity to be within the business community or in mainstream society cultures. Um, sometimes those are language barriers. They are definitely the greatest barrier is understanding or fitting within the culture. And I think that both that works both ways. That's not. I think the greater issue is. Uh, mainstream uh, businesses or community feeling like this person could integrate or the fact that they need to integrate, not just be, right? So that ends up becoming probably uh, the greater stigma that they're dealing with uh, just trying to, to get engaged and to be accepted. But if you start looking at some of the other issues, These are typically uh, new immigrant professionals. A lot of them are coming from war-torn countries. Uh, Some of them are coming uh, to Canada just because they're looking for better opportunities for their family. Uh, Some of them, you know, are, have just got issues, whether they're environmental concerns in their countries or maybe they're in some sort of a civil war, things of that nature. Well, if you were to take all of those concepts and apply them to Indigenous people, you've got people who were forced, specifically First Nations, forced on to reserve. There is what some would think, oh, that's not a big deal. You know, the reserve's only an hour and a half away from a big city centre, or sometimes it's right on the edge of the city like we have in Calgary. But that crossing over, that, that line, is a very big issue. This is one where right up into, uh, you know, the, the very near, uh, the very uh, uh, close past to us that uh, people had to get permission to leave the reserve. This now, you might not need permission to leave the reserve, but you enter into uh, businesses anywhere off the reserve or a grocery store and people are looking at you. People, whether there's judgment or not, there's definitely uh, an element of people recognizing that maybe you don't belong. But the weirdest dichotomy about this for Indigenous people in Canada is that it's North America's first people. These are people who are displaced within their own country. And you start looking at you know, people like myself, I'm Métis. You know, I'm a mix of, you know, uh, French-Canadian and Cree, uh, which is how the term Métis was used originally. It was to specifically describe 
the mixture that my family comes from, from the Red River Valley of Manitoba. But you look at that and you say, well, well, that's got to make it easier. It probably makes it easier. But now, you know, our group of people are called the forgotten ones. Not really, at some point, we weren't necessarily accepted by our Indigenous families. And we definitely weren't recognized by Europeans as being European. So there, when you start looking at how these barriers are similar for, for both groups, um, it is, it's uncanny how, how uh, deliberate it is um, and how, how much I think in society we decide to differentiate between one from the other. Much like, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Jane Elliott's um, uh, um, conversation about uh, blue eyes, brown eyes. No, I have not. I've, I've, yes. had it, I've had it referenced before, but no, I personally have not. Mm. Yeah, so it, it, just to uh, give a really quick explanation of what it is, uh, she was, uh, I think, from Iowa, a school teacher from Iowa, um, elementary, I think uh, either kindergarten or grade one, uh, she was incredibly uh, moved and had an epiphany after the death of Martin Luther King. And during that epiphany that evening, um, she was trying to figure out how would you teach all Caucasian children what systemic racism looks like. So the only way she could do it uh, was to differentiate the children between blue eyes and brown eyes. And she did some very specific things to give rights to blue-eyed kids for half of the day and then give rights to brown-eyed kids for the other half of the day. And children, that next day, she did this the next day, children were literally leaving the classroom crying <laughs> because of how drastic this was. But I think it's one of the only ways that the majority of people could understand how insidious um, racism can be. So a bit of a tangent, but I think that's where we could see the correlation between the two and we could, both groups can learn from one another. So fundamentally, this is still about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like we're still dealing with that, the fundamentals. And I understand we'll get into what you do at Influence, which is very much focused in on a very specific group and mentoring and, and, because that's, that's a big problem to tackle and it is the underpinning of, of everything that we're talking about and, and certainly is a topic that's become a lot more top of mind in our society as of late, which is a good thing because you can't fix a secret as, as they say. But understanding what you do specifically, you're not necessarily going after trying to change that root problem. And, and again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit what I'm thinking from our past conversation. You've gone into a very specific group and said, wow, we understand what you're facing. Let's really try to set you up for success knowing that we may be we can't on our own change the construct, but we can certainly set you up to be more successful to navigate it. Isn't that, am I, did I oversimplify that summary? <laughs> no, no, I think, I think that's a good explanation. And I, you know, and to your, to the beginning of your statement about DEI, you know, we're, we're seeing this a lot in society where we get these hot topics. <laughs> Typically the groups that are pushing it the most are corporations um, I think, unfortunately, government puts things in the hands of, of industry and says, hey, we're giving you all these benefits. You go solve the problems, right? That, that's really what's happening. So now we're seeing uh, special interest groups, um, certain topics being captured 
and they're typically being grabbed for about a five-year period. So what, what DEI, we are well into it, you know, we're a couple of years into it. And what was it before that? It was TRC. So, and the calls to action. So, you know, this is, this is great that these, these are becoming top of mind. You know, TRC can't be forgotten, but the lucky thing that Indigenous people have with DEI is it's really um, an offshoot of TRC or TRC is an offshoot of it or an, a component or an element of it. Okay. So, you know, we're lucky that we're sort of, we have this, uh, the siphoning effect that's still taking TRC along for the ride, even though we're on to a new set of words that we're gravitating to. Uh, okay. So it, the, the evolution of truth and Recu- reconciliation commission, again, we're not, it's a, it's a different, I love it. It's a different movement because it's been, but it, but it, it but it, 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 pulls pieces from itself. It is a continuation, but I like how you said how dangerous it is. We jump on like, what's the flavor of the five, what's the five year flavor that we're on and how dangerous that yeah. can be inherently. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the, yeah. not no, that, I, I, not I, that I appreciate, it, I appreciate your perspective on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not that it isn't important what the next one will be, but I'm pretty sure we're moving to environment. The next one's going to be environment and sustainability and Unfortunately, it's probably not going to wrap in, um, you know, people nearly as much. The, ES- the ESG conversation is interesting. I am constantly surprised as how, how it is diverging and including more and more things. And it's becoming almost a, the new catch-all acronym, to your point, TRC yeah. to DEI to ESG. And they all have reflections of each other. But I guess from your perspective as someone living in and living, working and supporting in the Indigenous community, uh, are we making progress? Is it getting better? Like, let's ask the real question. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm the per. I, I definitely can't speak for all Indigenous people. We are, I appreciate we that. are incredibly diverse, even within Canada. Um, of course, we've got four groups that uh, that make us we have first nations inuit metis and non-status indians um you know even within the first nation community i think there's 637 uh nations within canada so i was chatting you- with somebody yesterday and they said that there was 40s that they were working with them it was, it was um with hs and they were doing some work with the nations and they said that he'd identified 46 or 47, even in Alberta, which was a, which, which kind of blew me away. I didn't realize yeah. it was to that level of, uh, and each one being very different in yeah. its, in its function, in its culture, in its beliefs, in its heritage. That kind of blew me away a little bit of just how underappreciated that diversity was even on, just on my mind. Yeah. Well, and you even look at language, how diverse the language is, the Cree dialect, there's 26 Cree dialects. So... You know, you start looking at that and you're like, oh, wow, this is incredibly rich culture. So, but I guess what I would say is I, I'm not going to focus on the issues of the past. The issues of the past are going to inform my approach today and into the future. Uh, I believe I have a, a good sense of what it will take uh, for our community to be able to progress and to take hold of that progression, um, to be in control of it, uh, to to orchestrate it, uh, make it a reality for ourselves. And I think it's that approach 
that I utilize when I'm strategizing on how I run my company imagination or developing um, a mentorship program uh, to to serve uh, my community. Okay. So at Influence, okay, I appreciate how you narrow it into, I, I appreciate we're going to talk about the future, not necessarily to dwell on the issues of the past. But when you talk about Influence Mentor Society, what I was really impressed when you and I first chatted was how focused you were on the group that you wanted to influence, sorry, not to use your name, but the group you wanted to provide the most value to, you really narrowed in. And I find oftentimes, like as a marketer, the most difficult thing an organization can do is pick their pick their thing, pick their focus. Well, geez, yeah, but we want to do this and we want it because in, in a world of helping, everybody can use help, but I appreciate that you guys narrowed in. So maybe talk to me a little bit about the group that you focus on, why you chose them, and some of the opportunities you see through supporting a very, very specific group of individuals. Yeah. So Bruce, Jay, and myself, what we decided to do in 2014, uh, we had received um, uh, a $50,000 grant from the uh, from Human Services uh, from the government of Alberta. And they had some funds and they wanted to work with some groups that had some ideas that were ready to go. What we wanted to use those funds for was to do a research project. How and what um, need was out there in the community and how could you take uh, mentorship and apply it to the need. So when we did this research, we could find, and this would probably be something even yourself, you would, you'd probably guess. There's lots of programs for children. They're probably not enough to address all the issues, but you can find a number of programs for children. You can find programs or things directed at youth. And then you start to see a bit of a gap. Then you start to see programs that are geared towards Indigenous entrepreneurs, um, specific areas of industry, some, some professional designations, things of that nature. And what we looked at from that and from looking overseas, we were finding that the greatest gap was in the post-secondary area. So there was nothing that was bridging an Indigenous student from high school into post-secondary and then from post-secondary into their chosen career. So we decided, let's focus on the post-secondary student. We aren't, we aren't creating a program that's ensuring that Indigenous youth go to post-secondary. We're not focused on an individual going and finding a job. We are focusing on the student that has already found a way to get themselves into post-secondary and they have already made that choice that this is what I want to do and this is how I want to progress. Um, and we can focus on that individual and ensure that they feel supported throughout the journey. Because this is... I'll use the most extreme example. You take a kid, an Indigenous kid, off the res, you put them into Mount Royal College, which is literally a five-minute drive from the reservation, and the world is completely different. They have, they have never been in the, the, the... Potentially, they've never been in the environment, they haven't even gone to high school in 
the city of Calgary. They, you know, they might have, but chances are they might not have. And all they want to do is go to school. And there are so many issues going in there that they might not be able to even focus on their studies 100% like they need to, mm-hmm. plus compile all the issues that most students have in their first year of university, <laughs> totally. and they're just not effective anyways. So what could we do? We could offer peer mentorship to a student that needs some sort of um, specific support that they are able to articulate in whatever way and say, you know, I'd like to talk about this or I'd like some support in this or I'd like some guidance in this particular area. And that's how we kind of look at ourselves. We look at ourselves as a concierge service. What one student asks for is completely different than another student, but they're letting us know and they're directing that relationship and saying, I'm really good with my schoolwork. What I really want some help with is social, um, you know, my, my networking or building social capital or, you know, I'm going through a tough time right now. Or maybe I just want someone to hang out with, you know, once a month or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Did you get any kind of, maybe this is a weird question. Did you get any kind of pushback because you were so specific in terms of who, because it's always easy like, well, what about this group? And what about that group? And why don't we go a little bit here and a little bit? I can only imagine that that took a lot of discipline to set those boundaries in place to do the best for that group that you identified. Yeah, I think everybody um, has an idea of what's best. And I think it comes from the the gaps that they, they currently are are dealing with or having to face um, or they face themselves through their own journey. So yeah, we, one of the things that um, came up in the beginning was the continuum of a child through its journey. Okay. So if you were to look at it, it almost seems um bit ludicrous to focus on a student that's always found already found themselves in university when there are students who don't have the ability or don't have the support to even get to that step and we're not looking at them until they get there yeah so that was the first issue the second issue that we saw was well this is a little you know we offer an opportunity through university But the most important time that they have is probably bridging into the actual workforce. There's no protections anymore. You know, there's all these issues that, you know, we're all seeing, we're seeing in the news and whatnot. We believe that our program will have a natural progression to the continuum of supporting these students into their career. We think the mentors are probably going to play a role in that the peer-to-peer engagement that they're getting throughout our program is going to be a part of their support network. Uh, Their social capital will have been built somewhat by the time they're done. We think that one's going to be easier. We don't believe that if we were to focus on high school students and then travel with them throughout their post-secondary career, that the gestation period of being able to represent success is so long that how would we represent that to funders? So okay. 
we think where we are, we're focused, you know, we have a really deliberate focus area and we can partner with organizations that are dealing with the students in high school. So we can deal, we can partner with an organization like Inspire. Uh, we could uh, partner with uh, the Martin uh, Education Fund. Uh, that's a mentorship program as well that works specifically with high school students. We don't have any form, anything formally in place, but what we think we can do is we can line up all the opportunities so that an Indigenous student can see, I'll start here, and I'm not going to be ditched when I'm done high school because they're going to say, oh, great, now let's apply to influence. Apply to influence or apply to inspire, and we travel along. So there's this continual um, um, support network. I really like the visual that you're painting for me on my, on, my, on my imaginary whiteboard of this continuum of support and education and whether I've been having, you know, this is fundamentally a conversation on economic transformation in Calgary. And I have a lot of talks with the funding community and I'm really starting to see kind of, this is just a, maybe a, a random, but you're, but you're investing. So I think it's the same, actually, whether it's a startup or a student, you're investing in the potential for the future as these different funding groups come in for friends and family round and early seed stage. And then you get to your series A and it's different levels of need. And very seldom does one group go all the way through. It doesn't make sense. And as our ecosystem becomes more robust and let's be honest, who's, who has, who more potential of like, a student is like their own little startup, so much potential at every stage, but you need different levels of support. I really, I love also what you brought back to like being able to show a tangible outcome-based model, which I would imagine is very appealing to some of your funding partners that go, well, what are your results? What are your outcomes? And it's nice to quote unquote, do good things, but we live in a world where people want to hold up, you know, I invested, I contributed this and we yielded that. Sounds like you guys are able to put some very clear metrics to your kind of success profile. Yeah, and that's one where, you know, we believe it's going to be organic. So a lot of what we're doing is asking the protégés and the mentors when they come in, where they're currently at, where are they moving to, and, you know, what are sort of the dreams and aspirations? Of course, the majority of those questions are really directed at the protégés, but we're trying to ask mentors coming in so that we can match them appropriately. So it's a, an effective match. But part of what we're asking the, the protege is to, start, is to set smart goals. And it's not so much to hold them accountable, um, but it's for them to be able to reflect. This is what I said in my first year, first day of university or post-secondary, wherever school you're at, and this is how I would reword that today. Or this is what I achieved. And this is how I need to change. Now, this is the same as any strategic planning session you conduct within your organization. Mm -hmm. Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, it's always changing, right? Mm -hmm. And you're always changing. Uh, it's like, oh, we didn't plan for COVID. You know, scrap the whole plan. <laughs> let's let's uh, get into survival mode. And I, I think this is the part that is one of the biggest gaps for anybody, not just an Indigenous person, but for anybody. When someone isn't, when someone hasn't had the support in place to show you what this journey might look like, every time you come to the next thing, it's something that's unexpected for you. 
you know, and it's sort of like telling someone, uh, I want you to play a game of chess, but I'm not going to tell you how the pieces move. And I'm also not going to explain to you what the end goal is. And I'm not going to explain any of the rules. It's just going to evolve as it happens. And one of the greatest, um, greatest privileges some people have in their lives is they have parents or they have family members or they have mentors who prep them for all of these steps in their journey. And there's a reason why these people become successful. They understood the game incredibly well. And then the person also said, oh, and I've got, uh, I got someone to introduce you to who's going to help you get in here or help you get a job. Take an Indigenous person. We just don't have that kind of buildup within our community from okay. historically. And it's, it's a huge detriment uh, to our community. And even if there was a strong network there, there's still a transition. Like you said, it's five minutes away, but it's in a different world. And I think that's really powerful to think about that because it's easy to <clears throat> maybe minimize when we live in this world. We all look at the world through our own glasses and wonder why other people don't look at it the same way. Like that's such a fundamental human flaw, I think. Well, this is what it looks like from my vantage point. So you all must see the same thing. Like, well, no, arguably not. If I'm an indigenous youth and I've and I've made this journey, I've clearly committed and I've put in the work and I've made this transition to university, are they looking for you? Are you looking for them? Are they very open to the types of I'm always just curious of like, is there a suspicion? Are you here to help me? What like it not just all it's just in general, not even indigenous, but I'm curious of that first meeting. Do you have a lineup of people applying? How what does that look like? Yeah. So we think uh, strategically, when we look at the opportunity of engagement, it, it's it's not an Indigenous thing or a non-Indigenous thing. Uh, we're probably going to see 10% of the population who would ever seek out mentorship. Anybody, right? I, if you were to look at the number of people and you ask them, have you ever entered a formal mentorship program? I bet you'd be stretched to find more than 10%. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm sad to, to agree that I think you're completely right. <laughs> yeah, so, so we know that that is probably a reality. We, the same kind of people who seek out that kind of support or that kind of professional development or the, are going to be the ones who find us. So what we're doing in order to ease the burden of finding out who we are or finding realizing that they can access this, there's no cost, there's there's no limitations to who can be in it other than the fact that you need to be Indigenous and in post-secondary. We are creating formal partnerships with post-secondaries. So we will, by Christmas, uh, we will have our uh, formal relationship, MOU, with uh, University of Lethbridge, um, University of Saskatchewan, and First Nations University in Regina. So we will create more formal partnerships, but there's no limitation to a student joining our mentorship program of their own volition. Okay. They find us on the web, they find us through social media, they apply, we find them a mentor. That, that's, that's as clear cut as it is and uh, nothing more complex than that. Hmm. Um, we are, I think, once, like we are, we are accepting mentors and proteges right now, 
They will be in full mentorship mode by January 1st. Things are, we wanted it to be September 1st or September 6th, whenever they went back. But COVID, the post-secondaries are scrambling right now. They're just, they're trying to uh, navigate this reality that never seems to want to go away. Um, so they're, they're kind of dealing with that. So we know that September or January 1 will be in full mentorship mode and we're accepting them. So I don't know, we, we have over 40 mentors that are sitting in the wings. Awesome. Um, we are, we've had conversations with uh, four or five major organizations that are all going to bring 50 or so mentors into the system or more. So we'll have hundreds of mentors come January, um, you know, first quarter of 2022. And with the formal partnerships at the post-secondaries, those um, uh, Indigenous um, organizations within the institutions are the ones that are going to promote it to their students and say, the opportunities here, this is great, go out and get it. So we know that we'll have, you know, at least a couple hundred students uh, through 2022. And, um, you know, we want to we want to serve as many students as possible. But I think if we had a couple hundred in the first year, uh, that would be a great, a great start to it. Well, you're, you're, you, you've got, it's, it's, the, it's the two-sided, you know, platform. You've got the students, you've got the mentors. It sounds like you're, you're getting the mentors in place is key. Uh, so that's great to hear. And then getting more exposure and awareness to the students. Uh, curious around, you know, maybe the nuts and bolts. What's the funding model look like? Is this, is this privately funded? Is this pure donors, people seeing the vision and wanting to support you? Because again, these things don't run themselves. And I, I really appreciate that there's always a financial model behind the scenes. There needs yeah, to be. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we were... We had built the organization in 2014, um, new not-for-profits, at least in the province of Alberta, I can't speak for other areas of the world, um, have a very difficult time getting funding from government. It's, it's difficult to prove your model. It's, it's not. All, I don't think it's difficult to prove the need, uh, but I think it's difficult to approve how your methodology is going to be able to... Um, help or solve that particular issue so uh, we we knew we had to go out to corporations and you know our group has some fairly good contacts Uh, when we approached uh, we had found some interest from from the banking industry some other groups but they all wanted another another group at the table they all wanted to ensure that this would be sustainable and it just wouldn't be 75 grand thrown yeah. at an issue that maybe wouldn't even be there next year. Okay. And unfortunately, uh, you know, I'm, I, I don't need to explain this to you, but 2014 was the beginning of the downfall <laughs> it was. For, <laughs> it was. for Alberta, which has now lasted uh, over six years. And um, it was a terrible time to try to look for money. So, over that six-year period, up to December 2020, we were talking to different areas of the government. Uh, we were talking to other organizations, post-secondaries. Everybody was interested, but nobody was in the position or wanted to pull the trigger. Okay. Um, we got incredibly lucky. Uh, December 2020, um, Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively, um, as many of us have been reading, uh, we're looking at grassroots organizations across Canada 
that we're doing work with Indigenous people, by Indigenous people, and uh, they ended up selecting Influence. So we were lucky enough by March um, 2021 to have received $250,000 from them. That enabled us to do the kind of building we had to do to really make our program complete. And that's the work that we did from December right up to basically a month ago, uh, building up the program, doing what we need to do, creating the online uh, um, uh, portal that we utilize to run this program and for everyone to be engaged. So that gave us the funding that we needed, but we utilized, and I think this is really Ryan and Blake's approach, is that they know they can create awareness. Now, can they just go out and self-fund everything and do this, you know, uh, to the end of time? Absolutely not. This is a far bigger issue, even for the kind of wealth that they have. But they can create awareness. So they helped us to create the awareness. Uh, this enabled us with some of our other partners and people that we deal with in our other business lives um, to jump on board. These are the people bringing us mentors. Uh, they'll be the ones who will bring us in-kind support. Um, one of them being MNP. They, uh, they're going to be engaged with us in a, in a big way. And uh, they're going to do our audited financial statements. So that all of a sudden we don't have a cost associated yeah. to where organization typically spends ten or twelve thousand dollars, big savings for an organization like ours. Um, but we also got in front of the RBC Foundation. So we haven't made it public yet, but by the time this comes out, it'll be public. Um, they have given us some money, so that's fantastic. And um, we also received another donation from an organization called the Donner uh, Foundation. Um, they're Donner family from the United States. Uh, they're a private fund. Um, they, they go out and seek out opportunities and they approach you. So I think, you know, really what Ryan and Blake created um, has allowed us to be this, you know, rolling snowball. We're, we're gaining a little bit of momentum, you know, we're just starting to move. And uh, every time something publicly comes out, we have a group of people coming up going, you know, this is amazing. You know, this is a great opportunity. Can really see how something that's so simplistic can have that kind of impact. So, yeah, so an organization like ours probably realistically needs 500 grand a year to run, to run well. Okay. Uh, that's, I appreciate the numbers. What a fantastic opportunity to have, you know, uh, Ryan Reynolds and, and like to come to the table with that, to give you that backstop, to give you that, you know, there's been, I don't care who I talk to, whether it's startups or there's a big lineup in Alberta, sometimes to be second. There's sometimes the lineup to be first is a bit shorter. So to hear that someone with that type of influence that can create awareness for you literally overnight was able to like, it was, that's a huge validation and a huge checkbox to what you're doing. And now all of a sudden that conversation with funders becomes a heck of a lot easier. Let's be honest. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is most not-for-profits start out grassroots, one individual or one small group Within trying to address an issue in their community. And it might even be a region within a city. You know, it's not even a whole city. 
But one of the problems is most of the funders can only give money to a charity. So if you look at United Way, you look at Calgary Foundation, you know, these are organizations that you need to have charitable status. So the problem is they love what these grassroots are doing, but they can't give to them. So then you take a look and say, well, why doesn't everyone just become a charity? Well, CRA does not give out charitable status easily. Mm -hmm. And this is something that costs a minimum of about $12,000. So now you're taking a grassroots group who just wants to feed someone. Yeah. And you're asking them to take the only twelve dollars or $20,000 they have to go get charitable status to hopefully get um, some funding or, or, or sponsorship dollars. So the, what, this is the part that's unfortunate about our society, about the way our governments are structured. It takes these unique individuals who realize that they have um, the power and um, the, the opportunity, the, the, the monetary backing to be able to make these changes. Where as a society, we should be coming together or our government should be coming and saying, yeah, these are groups we need to support so that they can get to the point that they become self-sustaining. So, yeah, it's absolutely invaluable what uh, Ryan and Blake have done. And they're doing it for people, Indigenous people all across Canada. So powerful. Such a great, I, I really like your commentary. It feels like another podcast of like, you know, how do we shift the model that the, to allow more of those grassroots organizations to get that traction and not have to. And I understand why those mechanisms get put in place, but there's always, there's always an, un, you know, an unfortunate outcome to some of those rules and structures and regulations of like, if you run it out, what are we actually holding back by actually putting those basically legal, legal, like legalities in place and taxation. And again, they're all there for a reason, but what's at what cost? Hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, Colby, really excited. I and again, I Paul, this is interesting because when you and I first chatted, and I do really appreciate the way you presented it. I didn't realize how like where we were in the journey. I'm really excited to have being able to chat with you right at this point because when you and I talked and I go on your website, it feels like it's already a year from now versus what you just explained. So I think you guys have done a really good job. You've taken the last, you know, what's your, what's your most exciting project? Your next one, you guys have been yes. practicing and getting ready for what's coming up, like really launching this in January. That's incredibly exciting. And so do you see this as something that can go all the way across Canada? That feels like an obvious yes, but I thought I would ask anyways. Yeah. And that, and that's something I should probably talk a little bit about how this program works. So when we say indigenous post-secondary students, We are servicing students that are in university, colleges, polytechnics, DeVry. It doesn't matter. Any kind of continuing education, trade school, we will accept them and we'll find them a mentor. Okay, awesome. The the end goal is that once we have a large enough mentor pool, we will match a protege to a mentor based on the discipline that they are taking at school. So if they want to become an accountant, we will find them an accountant so that they, that person really understands their, um, uh, their academic um, career. They, they've been through it. 
they can speak to all those different areas. So there, there's, a, there's a technical side of it. And also back to your point, those people are also going to be connected. They're going to be in the industry. They're going to be working at places, which fundamentally we all know in the world, it, it is those relate like nothing much happens with a relationship somewhere along the way. I really, I really like that strategy. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, Perfect sense. That's right. So uh, in the meantime, we're going to find the right people to match with the right right mentors to match with the right proteges. Okay. We just want people who can connect and talk. And then as our mentor pool builds, we'll be able to be more specific. Um, we, like we said, we will have some, uh, some formal relationships with post-secondaries. So we're going to have a protege pool coming in because of that partnership. But right now, from today, if there is an Indigenous student any institution across Canada that wants to be mentored, we will take them. Fantastic. The reason why we're able to do this is because our mentorship model from day one, from 2014, was going to be delivered online. We did it. The, the reason why we chose in 2014 uh, that style of model was because we wanted something that could be easily sustainable. Yeah. Mentorship programs are inherently expensive because they are labor intensive. They're very difficult to run. So we wanted a program where an online model was helping to do the matching, was helping to orchestrate the relationship and gave an environment that they could come together. But one of the other major reasons that we needed it was that because we want to match mentors and protégés based on discipline, You've now got to find an individual who wants to mentor, who wants to mentor within the Indigenous community, who has the time to do it, and is from that discipline. And if it were a st uh, any, uh, the majority of other mentorship programs in the same region, the same city. Too many, so too many, we, too many limitations. <laughs> yeah, way too many limitations. So if we take out the regional need, we take that part out, the opportunity for us to find an accountant who has the other four elements, but could be anywhere in Canada, but mentor another student anywhere in Canada, you can, you can find that. So now we will have maybe a mentor in Toronto, a protege at UVic, and they are having a fantastic online mentoring relationship now try pushing this concept in 2014 <laughs> i was laughing about how ahead of your curve that how ahead of the curve you were in 2014 where now it just yeah. sounds like you describe every model that is now thriving <laughs> yeah exactly so the best thing for influence was COVID. i appreciate there, that yeah there is that was by far the best because now the argument was completely gone and people don't even remember that that was part of their issue in the beginning. You can't even take credit for being ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So, I just, another great example of technology used to enable a human experience. Like I do really love the fact that the technology becomes, it's the, it's the thing that allows it to happen, but yet it evaporates into the background because you're just still connecting two humans. I just, I love the beauty of that. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're incredibly excited because the scalability of an organization like influence with this kind of model should be unprecedented. It should be almost virtually social media driven, that same kind of approach and philosophy to it. Um, 
we should be able to serve thousands of Indigenous students at the same time in the next couple of years so that the barrier also encountered by, you know, people in need or, you know, uh, people who are marginalized is the amount of room there is for them in programs designed to support them. If we can get rid of that and we can create an environment that mentors feel uh, is an enriched experience, they're getting something out of it, it's mutually beneficial, and you have an environment where protégés can come in, they feel um, safe, supported, and it's all culturally appropriate, now you have an environment that is sustainable long-term, it's drawing people to it, it's a part of professional development for, for individuals, and it's a part of an experience that people like a protege say, oh, I, I want to be able to say I'm an alumni of influence, hmm. right? We want, when someone says the word influence, we want them to think about that that's influence mentoring, that's protégés, that's an advanced group of people that are bridging the gap between cultures and playing a role to addressing TRC and the calls to action. That should be something that is absolutely paramount in, in where we head. And the barrier means, if we remove that barrier, that means all Indigenous students who want to be mentored, they'll get a mentor. That doesn't matter if that's 10 or 15 or 20 or 30,000 students someday. That should be what we're able to create. The beauty, I love that. I love so much about what you just said. The beauty of this statement for anyone who hasn't been a mentor, it's easy to think about the benefit being strictly for the students. But that's not true. When you're a mentor, you walk away. I get off when I, we do mentoring at our organization. And it's something we, we've always done. And I've had mentors. And now I, 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 whenever I have the opportunity, I jump at it. I sometimes get off the call thinking I got more out of it than they did. It's such a, like, it's so interesting. I know it sounds silly to say that, but if you haven't been a mentor and had that role in your life, formally in business or whatever it might be, but it is, it is incredibly rewarding, like exponentially. So it's a bit of addicting. Like you, you can't, you can't not do it once you've started <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I, I would echo exactly what you said. There's not a time where I leave that conversation going, man, they were, they were lucky to have me today. It's the other no, way around. I, yeah, it never happens. I come out of there and I'm like, oh man, I feel supercharged. I got some energy back. Now I, I got what I need to go. Sometimes I'm like, work. geez, I hope they got something for me because I got a ton from them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's when you yeah. know you're, that's when you're doing it right. In my, in my opinion. Colby, yeah. fantastic to share the story. And I almost feel apologized. When we first met, you guys are, you, you have your story so well put together and even your website shows up really well. I thought you were farther down the path. And that means nothing more than how surprised I am and excited to be able to have this conversation with you at this juncture. So I'm already going to put it out there. You know, Q2, Q3, um, 2022, we're going to circle back and we're going to do the, you know, how is it going now kind of mindset. And I love drawing attention to this. So I can only assume if someone is listening and they want to get involved, they want to be a mentor or funder, they can go to their your website, influencementoring.com. Is there can they reach out to you directly? What's the best way? If, yeah. if somebody's excited right now in their jazz, what can we get them to do? Oh, they can they can apply. If they jump onto the website 15 minutes later, their application is done. And their application is actually the beginning of building their profile within the system. So then they're accepted into it, mentors and proteges. 
and then they build out their whole um, profile. Uh, Proteges, there's you know fairly extensive uh, mentors, not quite as extensive, but they literally could become engaged within 15 minutes, and you know, and, th and that's what we're looking for. But we think that um, the the website is very robust. Um, it's easy to navigate. Language is very clear. Uh, but if they want to reach out, uh, we have an executive director named Charles Filipski. Uh, he's on there. He, you can awesome. contact him right through the website. If you email info at, uh, at Influence uh, Mentoring, I'm also on that. So you'll also get me. Nice. Um, and I, had then, yeah, I had a feeling you were fairly close to this at this point. <laughs> yeah, still very close to it. So, um, yeah, so you're you're going to get in touch with people right away. And uh you know, this is something where I've always been amazed at unique uh, not-for-profits. They always feel welcoming. They feel special. And there's something where you really want to be involved in it. And I believe that influence, um, influence exudes all of those qualities. So, yeah, we're really excited to hear from people and excited that you uh, took the opportunity to, to allow us to speak to you today. Well, thank you, Colby. I, I love your passion. I, I'm feeling exceptionally jazzed up myself right now. So thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> your, 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 your first audience member of one has really enjoyed the story and your clear passion and excitement for this. And I just want to say thank you for the work you're doing. I, the, the amount of people I meet in our community in Western Canada, everywhere, but I'm going to speak to my, to my family, which is Western Canada right now. The amount of willingness for people in our community to give back and contribute, it's mind blowing. Like there's, there's no reason that there, that any barrier that we want to overcome, we can, we just need to focus on it. The people and the willingness to, for people to put money behind it, whether it's organizations, like we have a lot of things we can do better, but I do believe we have the people to do it. Yeah, I agree. And, and I'd like to, and I'm uh, proud to, proud to have met you and uh, really excited to uh, kind of follow the story as it evolves. So Colby, thank you so much for your your time today, the work that you do. And uh, yeah, you and I are going to be chatting again in 2022. I'm going to put it in my calendar. Mm. Okay. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you.